chapter 15, Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, and we're going to look at verses 11 through the end. Notice what Jesus says, and this is His uh, third parable in a row to be saying at this point in Luke, which Luke is a little more detailed than some of the others and has many parables. Notice what Jesus says, and He said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near, to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when, his, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and, that is, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found." Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Your Word is 
sharp, powerful. It can penetrate to our very core. This morning, Lord, would You do that to us this morning? Would You place Your Word at the core of who we are? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't watch many of these shows, but I have seen a couple episodes of this show called The Voice. Anyone familiar with The Voice, you know? It's these celebrities who are in these seats and they listen to someone sing who they've never seen before, right? They've never heard before. They can't see them. They're facing this direction and the, the performance is going on behind them. Well, the point of it is that they, when they hear someone who they think they can believe in and think that they can work with to maybe make them into a, the next star... Uh, they hit a button and it turns them around. So, you know, and they turn around. They say, hey, you know. And then maybe another one, you know, hit a button and they turn around. You know. And they say, I'm choosing you. And of course, then they have to, you know, choose each other and all that good stuff. And they try to make them basically coach them. <laughs> and I can't help but think that when we start this parable, we have to come to an understanding about who the Father is. This is what Jesus is truly doing here, is revealing to us the very first thing we're told to pray, which is our Father who art in heaven. The very first uh, stanza, if you will, in our creed, which is our Heavenly Father. Who is that Heavenly Father? He's one who, before He even knows you or you do anything, He's already hitting the button. He's already turning around saying, I choose you. I want to be your coach. I want to be rooting for you. Remember our passage from Hebrews a couple weeks back? He's your greatest fan. He's your best coach. He's already hitting the button before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. So before the foundation of the world, He has elected you to be in Christ Jesus. What a thought that is. What a father that is. And this is the type of revelation that Jesus is bringing to none other than sinners and tax collectors, or as Luke says, tax collectors and sinners, and Pharisees and scribes. There's two different kinds of people that he's addressing. If you back up to the beginning of 15 here with me, just to get a quick context you see that it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him. So these tax collectors who were known sinners, obviously, you know, it's kind of like saying politician or lawyer. I mean, you typically don't think very highly of them morally a lot of times. Same thing with tax collectors. wasn't that every one of them was, but it was just, uh, you know. They were almost the strippers of the day, except in a male thing. They were known to be sinners. Tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, and they said, this man receives them and also eats with them. And so Jesus then, when He finds that out, He tells a parable. And the first parable is the parable of the lost sheep. You remember that one. He has 99 
but if he loses one, he goes out to find that one. He also then follows that up with the parable of the lost coin. And the woman sweeps her whole house for that one coin, even though she has others. She's looking for that one that was lost. And both times it says when it was found, the sheep, the coin, when it was found, it was a time to be joyous and to celebrate. And then Jesus talks about, I know it's called the the prodigal son or the parable of the prodigal son, but... Today I want to look at it and say it's also the parable of the lost son. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. The story begins in the father's house. And what is this house like? Well, this house is a place of abundance. This kid has an inheritance coming to him. You know, some of you, you know, you're looking at your parents and thinking, well, I don't really have much of an inheritance coming to me. This guy has got an abundance. This is obviously a place where he doesn't need anything. He has everything he needs. (laughs) And isn't that what we imagine the Heavenly Father's house to be like? Isn't that who the Good Shepherd truly is? He is my shepherd, I shall not want, or another translation would say, I don't need anything. He's my shepherd. I don't need anything. He leads me where I need to go. Gives me what I need. I don't need anything. It's like our song said moments ago that we were singing, it's well with my soul. I'm content. And yet, we're not content. (laughs) Not in our American way of life because we don't live with our mind set on the Father and His abundance. He owns everything. Everything is His. It's not yours. It's not someone else's. Someone's not getting your piece of the pie. He's not withholding to be stingy. We have everything we need in His house. Not only that, this is a house of moral order. Obviously, when He wants to go sinning, He doesn't do it in his father's house. He knows, and I quote from my father, that under my house, that kind of stuff's not going to happen, son. Now you can go somewhere else and do it, but you're not going to do it here. Followed up by, you understand me? (laughs) In a very militaristic voice, as he often has and you know. Very intimidating. If you know him. In the father's house... There's a moral structure. And if you want to go sinning, it must be done somewhere else. And this is why he goes, quote, to a far and distant land. He doesn't just go down the street where all the neighbors are going to report back to his dad on how he's been living. You know how this works out in the country. Instead, he goes off and away. This is also a religious man. (laughs) The story reports to us that he fed pigs, which if you know anything about Judaism, pigs are off limit. No pork for you. No bacon. Um, And to feed pigs is the demise of... You can't go to the temple if you do that. If you mess around with pigs and eating their junk, and he can't even eat their stuff. 
They, they won't even give it to him, much less the owner. And he's starving. But in the Father's house, there's an abundance. There's more order. In the Father's house, there's religion. And again, religion is not negative. We've, we've almost made to be religious negative. Jesus was one of the most religious people that ever lived. I would dare not say He wasn't. <laughs> he started a religion, by the way. If you haven't noticed, it's called Christianity. And we are Christians of that Christianity. So religion is not a negative thing, but it is something that binds us. It's actually where the term means. It binds us. You know, it's what we, the way we use it commonly to say, oh, he's religious about his Alabama football. Which means simply, he's disciplined. He's bound himself to it. We are all... See, their little secret is that we are all religious. We're just religious about different things. We're all bound to certain things in our life. Be bound to Jesus. That's the religion of Christianity. He is the center. Hence, Christ at the beginning and center of Christianity. He is the end. The beginning and the end. So the Father's house is also a place of goodness. It's also a place of face-to-faceness, if you will. In other words, He sees His dad. He can't live in spite of His dad if He's looking at Him every day. How do you do that? That can only last so long in a marriage. It can only last so long in a family. To be lying face to face. We would much rather hide that and never have to come to terms face to face. It's very different when someone texts you rather than look into your face and say something. It's much easier to put a, put a comment on Facebook than it is to look someone in the eyes when you're standing with them and say the same thing. <laughs> oh, um, I could say a lot with the Facebook commenting because people don't think that I would back that up face to face, but I have before, and the person actually broke out in hives. I'm not, I'm, I'm not kidding. It, it just goes to show you how impersonal our world has become. That people storm you know, their phones and storm their computers, but when you get face-to-face with them, I mean, they can't even say anything. It's like we don't know how to talk to people anymore. We've lost relationship. And he did too. He broke relationship on purpose. In his father's house, there was also freedom. Which is why, even though his father, as being a wise man, knew what he was going to do with his money, knew his son, he let him go. He didn't withhold. The second phase of this story is where he leaves. And it happens very quickly, really, in the story. As far as that goes, it's just a couple verses down. And this is what I call prodigal living. I looked up the term prodigal. And you know me, I like to look up terms, naturally. The term at its root in Greek actually means lavish. This is lavish living, profuse living, luxurious 
living. And I just was struck. I'm thinking, really? That's the root of prodigal? I had thought for so many years it was wayward. You know, he's lost. That's what prodigal... No, no, no. A lavish lifestyle. Now that really hits every single one of us in this room between the eyes. We all live... I know you, and you know me. We all live in Huntsville a lavish lifestyle. Now, you may not consider it lavish. Go to India. Go to China, two places we've already mentioned. Go to Africa. We li- go back a thousand years. Go back 3,000 years. We live one of the most lavish lifestyles ever known to mankind. We live better than the ancient kings could ever have even dreamed of living. And yet it's not enough. And yet we have to do it again tomorrow. We live just like a prodigal. We live luxurious. We think everything is for us and for our taking. Look, when I preach, I'm speaking to me. You're just listening in. I got hit between the eyes. You know, thinking of the prodigal son in particular and what he really wanted. You know what he really wanted? I wrote down three things. He wanted freedom without limits. Now, his father was offering freedom. No one, he wasn't a slave. He wasn't hired help. He was a son. He had full freedom. And even if he wanted his money, he could take it as he did. If he wanted to leave, he could as he did. He had freedom, but he wanted freedom without... You know, it's the same kind of thing when you went off to college. You were looking for freedom without limits. Finally, I'll be out of this house. I mean, how many times have we said that and heard it said? No longer having to deal with that militaristic dad of mine and his rules, his moral order. He wanted instead moral relativity. Another way of saying that. Just morals. I mean, what is that? That's just, you know, you could have some over here and we could have some over here. It's all relative to one another. Hence the term relative. It's all relational. You know, what's right for you may be right for you, but it's not right for me. And what's wrong for me uh, may not be wrong for you. This is what he wanted. This is not what his father offered. It's also not what the father offers. He also wanted to be able to squander and to live a lifestyle of ease and enjoyment. That doesn't sound bad, especially to us, because that's what we live for, is ease and enjoyment. If we listen to ourselves pray for five minutes, we will have prayed for ourselves to have a good day, to have an easy day, to have a good day. 
to be blessed. And I'll be honest, Dwight Brewer, I'll give him credit here, really checked me on this. Because I, he, he got me thinking in this direction of how do we pray for ourselves. And the more I watched myself pray, the more I noticed how much I pray for myself. It was troubling to me and has been. Not only that, when we listen to Paul pray, Paul doesn't pray like we pray. We have most, you know, most examples of Paul praying. The psalmist doesn't pray like we pray. And then it hit me. College is really where this prodigal living occurs the most. And most of us here have gone to college and experienced that type of life. A life where we felt like we could live without limits. Or maybe it's our 20s. Maybe that's the prodigal time to live. And it's the acceptable time in our culture to live. This life where things are being paid for. Where it seems we can live without limits. Where we can go and squander. And people do. The statistics concerning those who go off to college and go to church are staggering. So many people grow up in the church and once college hits, they never return. They become prodigal. Luxurious living. They can't get enough of it. And I've noticed here, even after college, we still hold on to college life. In our dating, in our marriages, longing to be back with multiple partners, longing to be able to go and party or do whatever it is we did just on our own time, enjoy ourselves. That's all we want is to enjoy ourselves. Some people do it by eating, some people do it by drink, some people do it by sex, some people do it by video games, some people do it by entertainment in general. Everybody has their little niche of how they want to enjoy their self. This is prodigal. This is lavish. And the reality is, we here in Huntsville have been given a position where we can live like that. And to me, it's scary. To me, it is troublesome. He goes and tries to find himself like so many people do in college. I need to go find myself. The problem is you can never find yourself by looking or feeding yourself. No matter what psychology has to offer to you, you will only become lost the more you look inward. Which is why most people with a psychology degree come out not knowing even what psychology is anymore. Or who they are. No, you know, I know I always kind of throw, one, throw a bone over to psychology, but that's a general degree that people go after because they don't know what they're looking for. And they still don't know when they're finished with it. This right here is a guide. 
This right here can help you find yourself. But what you're going to find about yourself is something that you typically do not want to hear or see. Does he find this radical freedom? Does he find this enjoyment of himself? No, he doesn't. What he finds is that money runs out. Debt piles up. That the fun can't go on into the next day. And that when the fun is over, when the money's spent, no one's standing beside you. No one's willing to help you. Because those friends are along for the ride. Not concerned with you, but your money. Not concerned with you, but what you can give to them. Because when you're in an atmosphere of everyone's a taker, how can you be cared for? Which is why, guys, the church ought to be so radically different than that. Not inward. When you go inward, you lose yourself, Jesus says. When you feed this thing, you will only become lost. Dead and not alive. And yet we all come under the spell of that lie. Even now, some of you are breaking under the weight of trying to feed yourself. Trying to enjoy yourself, entertain yourself, whatever it may be. I mean, it's great the way the, the Hunger Games, which was a recent movie and book, put it. The philosopher in Rome said, if you want to control people, do two things. Feed them bread and entertain them with circuses. I'm afraid when I look out into Huntsville, Madison, I see a lot of people being entertained. It's what they live for, to go home and be able to watch a movie or do whatever it is they do. Be able to go out to eat wherever they want, whenever they want. We've been fed bread and circuses, bread and entertainment, food and entertainment. And how much more does God have for us than just to live for that? How short have we really fallen from true life? And yet we want decadence. Decay. And I even hear people. I heard last night when I was listening to the radio on the way. You know, I hope you're drinking tonight on some kind of 104.3. You know, I hope you're drinking tonight. Ha ha ha. You got to drink a couple beers for me, you know. Because we like to feel like we're okay. Everybody's doing it, right? As long as everybody's doing it, surely that's okay. And we hear Jesus' strong words that say the way is narrow, not broad. The broad way leads to destruction and not life. And so he comes to the end of himself. And there, become, there comes a severe famine, as it says. All his money spent, all his friends are gone. He sells himself to feed the pigs. Which, as we've already noted, as for a Jew, is the worst type of situation you could ever find yourself in. And he can't even eat their slop. 
don't know if you've ever seen pigs eat, but it's quite nasty and smelly. And they eat the leftovers of, you know, the rinds of corn and this. And, I mean, it's slop. That's what you call it, slop. He can't even eat that. He's not even given that. And the Scripture says that he comes to himself or he looks within and says, what if, even my father's servants eat better than I'm eating. They never go hungry. And here I am starving. Here I am enslaved. He started out, started out on a mission to find himself. And how many of us and how many friends that we know started off in college and went and lived a lavish lifestyle and now they're having trouble in their marriage because they want to go back. And there is no going back. It's just like in the Chronicles of Narnia, Edmund cannot get that little dessert tray off of his mind. It's all he thinks about. <laughs> Go back to the Bobby illustration. We're, we're like little kids. All we can think about is that gum. After I mean, they're in there thinking about it right now. And as soon as I say amen, they're going to rush in here because they want that gum. It's all they can think about. It's all we think about. It's whatever it is we want to enjoy. And we'll do anything. We'll sell our friends out. We will betray people. We'll lie to cover up. All for what? All to feed ourselves. And he comes to the end of it and he says, what kind of life is this? And how many people have told us, without us having to go into it, how many people have told us, like my dad told my brother and I, that at the end of that bottle is not life. The end of sin is not life, but death. And there my dad was in Vicksburg, Mississippi when I was three years old. Ready to kill himself. Why? Because he had tried to live his best for himself. He had tried his best to enjoy himself by drinking it away or by sleeping around or whatever it was. He tried to enjoy himself. And what did he find? He found that he was a slave be a good matrix quote right there, Casey. You are a slave, Neo. There was a great famine. He was unclean. He was far away from home. But the good part of the story is, and this is where things come around, is the return. It's the fourth stage of the story. He returns. He confesses that he can't do it anymore. He confesses it's not him. It's not about him. That he's about to lose him. And instead he returns to his father. And he's willing to return, not as a proud son. Look what I've accomplished at. Because sin always leaves us with nothing. Nothing. The wages of sin is death or nothing. That's what Psalm 1 talks about. What does the life of sin give you at the end? It gives you nothing. Nothing. He confesses. He repents. 
and he believes that his father will take him back as a servant, as a hired servant at least. (laughs) Of course, we all know the good part. The father sees him from afar. He's been waiting on him to return. He knows that when he squanders all of his possession, he'll come back. He hopes he will. He hopes that it hasn't killed him. And when he sees him, he puts on him a robe. And this is the robe of grace, isn't it? That Jesus speaks about being clothed in righteousness. How many of us have come from that filth? If you've never found yourself at the bottom of a pit, then you've never really truly viewed your sin. Even sin that you don't think is that bad compared to the world is horrible and horrific. And if you let it eat away at you, you'll become demonic. Just like what C.S. Lewis said. He says, every person you meet will either one day become the most angelic, holy being you've ever seen that you would think they were a god. Or they'll become the most demonic nightmare you've ever dreamed of. We are moving toward one of those two poles. There is no in-between creature. He returns and the Father puts a robe on him, puts a ring on his finger, and makes a meal for him. This is the meal, (laughs) truly, of the Eucharist, which is what we call communion, or the Lord's Supper, which Eucharisto is a Greek word meaning thanksgiving. I don't know if you've ever been out in the wilderness before and not had a good meal for a week, but I have in the Bighorn Mountains of Wyoming. For a whole week, I ate stuff where you poured water in it and it blew up. And you ate it because it was all you had. Not literally blew up, but, you know, like eggs. You just Like those eggs you get at cafeterias, you know, they add water and they become eggs or something of the sort. After that week was over, I wanted a meal so bad. I mean, I just wanted a hearty meal. Not one with water and grain, but something hearty, filling. And as you heard from John 6, Jesus alone is the bread that can satisfy you. It's His flesh. It's His literal body. That alone feeds us. You know what His body is? His body is the church. That is the body of Christ. If you feed on His body, you will never go hungry. What a thought that is. You don't have to go looking this week to try to enjoy yourself. He can bring contentment to your life. He can bring true joy just like we see in Baz. Just as I saw yesterday in his life, even as he's grieving the loss of his daughter, he still has the joy of the Lord. You know what he told him? He said, he said, let me tell you a story. And I love his stories. They're always very wise. He's before a congregation of people that knew her. He said, imagine yourself on a dock. 
people are milling about and they're sad. And Suzanne gets on the boat and we're telling her bye. We'll never see her again. And she gets on the boat and off the boat goes and it gets smaller and smaller as it hits the horizon. And finally it's, it's just a little speck and somebody that says, there she goes. And there's great crying and mourning. But he said, imagine the other shore where people again on the dock are milling about and there's a chatter going on. There's anticipation for her arrival for they know she's coming. And they're looking. They're waiting. And they see a speck. And as it approaches, there's great excitement and joy for now she gets to see her mother, her sister who has passed on, her family, others that she loved. And she's welcomed in that place. He said, I want you to think about that today as we celebrate our life. Where are you? It's a question that God asked Adam and Eve. Where are you? In your season of life, where are you? Which Are you in the Father's house? Are you living the prodigal Lavish lifestyle with no worries, no responsibility? Are you in a severe famine? Where you feel like you're just starving for something real? Or are you on the return? Have you repented? Are you going to see the Father? You know, it reminds me of the four seasons that we have. Summer, which is hot, great. We can go outside. We can play. My kids love it. We loathe the winter at our house. Everybody's trapped inside. I feel like I'm in a prison with a bunch of crazies. And I'm one of the main ones. Or you think of the fall... Even think about the term fall, which is where he finds himself in this prodigal living. He's falling. And in the winter is barren. Nothing is producing fruit in the winter. But then, isn't spring a glorious time after a hard winter? <laughs> or think of this, the times of the day. Think of the day right now, and then as it approaches nightfall, you, you, you're almost, if you're camping, there's almost a fear that overtakes you of the darkness that will set in during the night. But oh, how glorious, isn't it, for a new day to approach? Those rays of sun. I don't know if you've ever been camped before and, and longing for it. Justin and I went to the Appalachian Trail and we had a very long night of electrical storms that went through, and I promise you I was praying for daylight. And it finally came. And when it came, oh, I was so ready to go hiking and get out of there. What a glorious day it was. Where are you in your season of life? Are you in a wintry, barren place? The good news is spring is coming. He can bring you into full summer balloon if you'll let Him.
if you'll confess your sins, if you will repent, which means to turn away and go back to the Father. It doesn't mean just to go do the same thing again and get your forgiveness and and just go do it again. He left that life. You can't be wayward and at home at the same time. Come home. I have to use it. I always do. Maybe overuse it. But St. Augustine's famous quote, Our hearts are restless till they rest in Thee. You'll never have rest in this life unless you allow yourself to be resting in Christ. He is trustworthy. He's faithful. He's good. He's the good Father. He's watching for you. He's waiting for you. And He will meet you wherever you are. Come to Him today. Now. Amen.